When I think of rum, I think of pirates. Yo ho ho, and a bottle of rum, right? And when I think of pirates, I think of treasure chests full of gold, silver, precious gems, buried treasure. The rum seems recreational, dastardly, debaucherous, trivial. The treasure. Now that's serious. That's the job. There's no messing around with the treasure. But did you know, for many in the business of maritime trade and yes, even piracy, the rum was the treasure? Did you know that rum, while likely started by enslaved Africans, later became the currency with which they were bought and sold? And did you know that rum was such a valuable commodity in colonial America, it helped open the door to the American Revolution? Changing the world forever. Let's fix that. Hello, I'm Shayla Fontaine, and you're listening to History Fix, where I discuss lesser-known true stories from history you won't be able to stop thinking about. The story of rum is one of extreme contradictions. Freedom and oppression, debauchery and integrity, expansion and exploitation. I had no idea how much this seemingly trivial spirit has impacted history. Each drop of rum tells a story that contradicts the next. In one drop, the story of enslaved Africans forced to labor on Caribbean sugar plantations, searching for any small reprieve from daily persecution. In the next, the story of men, greedy and blinded by privilege, trading barrels of liquor to purchase other men as property. In another drop, the expansion of territory, development of industry, and establishment of cities and towns, colonies, ports, thriving civilizations. The next, the decimation of indigenous people, destroyed by foreign diseases, alcoholism, forced off their ancestral lands, pushed down to the lowest rungs of society. Another drop, the story of a young country, hungry for independence, eager to sever the ties that bind it to a tyrannical throne. And yet, next drop, too weak to face the tyranny it shows its own people in the form of slavery it acknowledges is evil but refuses to put a stop to. Each drop contradicts the next until you're too intoxicated to tell where one story ends and the next begins. And that, my friends, is my kind of history. I have a list of episode ideas. I've mentioned this before. I add to it every now and then. It's more of a brain dump than anything. Some ideas have been on the list since I first dreamt up History Fix, and they haven't found their way to becoming episodes yet. This story didn't happen like that, though. This one sought me out when I least expected it. My birthday was last month, and all I wanted for my birthday was to get away from my kids for a minute. No, that sounds terrible. I was with them all day. Okay, we went to the pumpkin patch. It was a whole thing. I just wanted, like, a nice evening out, which I got. Thank you, Grandma. Got a date night with my husband, we went out to dinner, and then we popped into a local rum distillery, Outer Banks Distilling, in Manio on Roanoke Island. Yes, of Lost Colony fame. Our friend Matt Joyner works there, and we've been trying to get in there for a drink, like, all summer. So, mid-October, finally pulled it off. And it was fantastic. The rum was great. And then Matt was like, do you guys want a tour? And we were like, um, yes. So he took us into this back room... 
And it's like a steampunk science lab meets Willy Wonka chocolate factory. It was way cool. There was like this giant copper tower thing with little porthole windows all the way up. Stuff was like bubbling in one room. And and then there was another room just stacked floor to ceiling with these big wooden barrels. Not at all what I was expecting. Very Willy Wonka, but rum instead of chocolate. Anyway, Matt is explaining the process, how they distill the rum, what all the crazy machinery does, the beeps and boops, the drips and bubbles. And then he throws in a fun fact in there. He's like, you know, rum comes from the sugar plantations in the Caribbean. The slaves invented it, and then it was used to absolutely destroy. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we are doing an episode on rum. And so this one just fell into my lap, really. So I had to sit down with Matt to learn more. My name's Matt Joyner. I'm the beverage director here at Outer Banks Distilling. I run the cocktail bar and um, work pretty closely with Adam, the uh, production manager and uh, one of the other owners, making some of this rum that, that we put out here. You'll hear some beeps and boops in the background because remember, Matt's basically Willy Wonka. And then he recruited one of the best in the business to chat with me as well. My name is Scott Smith. Um, I'm one of the owners here of Outer Banks Distilling producers of Kill Devil Rum. My main job is, is sales and marketing. That's where I kind of shine and what I what I do for the business. Uh, and I also like all the history of what we're doing as well. That's Matt's boss, Scott. He's in the business of making rum, and he's also a history fan. So, of course, I had to talk to him. And then Scott put me in contact with Dr. Frederick Smith, associate professor and global studies coordinator at North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro. He's also the author of a book called Caribbean Rum, A Social and Economic History, which I have linked in the description, of course. He's the go-to guy when it comes to unpacking the convoluted history of rum. So I'll let him get us started. What is rum exactly? What makes rum different from other types of liquor? So rum is made from sugarcane and uh, it's distinguished from vodka, which is made from potatoes and uh, gin, which is made from wheat. Uh, so it's distinguished in that way. And there are actually rules about uh, the fact that rum needs to be made in sugarcane growing regions of the world. So uh, historically, rum had to come from the Caribbean or other tropical areas. But that definition has been broadened out now. And so rum can be uh, a lot of different things. But True rum is made from sugarcane juice or the byproducts of sugar making, which are molasses and uh, the scum that sort of bubbles up in the process of making sugar. So rum comes from sugarcane. And sugar, as I've mentioned before, was an incredibly valuable trade good in early America, often referred to as white gold. So while everyone's out there searching for treasure chests full of gold coins, it's likely a lot of the treasure was actually barrels of sugar and rum that have long since disintegrated at the bottom of the sea. During the days of colonization, the Caribbean exploded as a major producer of sugar. It had the perfect climate for it. Europeans had no problem pushing the indigenous people, already weakened by disease, off of their lands, setting up sugar plantations, and importing enslaved Africans to do the back-breaking labor for free. But sugar did not originate in the Americas, like potatoes, tobacco, and pumpkins. There was already sugarcane growing in Southeast Asia and the Middle East. 
However, it didn't make its way to Europe until around the 11th century, when it was brought back by soldiers returning from the Crusades in the Middle East. But it remained an extremely rare luxury in Europe, where they mostly continued to use honey as a sweetener. It's incredibly difficult to refine sugar out of sugarcane, so even in places where sugarcane grew naturally, sugar was expensive. In Europe, where it was imported, it was almost unattainably expensive. So, if sugar came from Southeast Asia and the Middle East, why didn't rum originate there as well? Dr. Smith seemed certain that rum originated in the Caribbean. The origins, the birthplace of rum, is Barbados in the 1640s, and followed probably shortly thereafter, or around the same time as Martinique, a French Caribbean island of Martinique. It's likely they did make some form of alcoholic beverage out of sugarcane, but it would have been more similar to a wine or a beer as opposed to liquor. So yes, so in the ancient times in India and China and likely parts of the Mediterranean, folks where sugarcane grew or sugarcane originally came from, the South Pacific, they recognized the potential to ferment sugarcane juice. Sugarcane has a uh, the juice from sugarcane has a high sucrose content, and um, you need sugar for the yeast to consume to uh, turn that uh, sugar into ethanol or alcohol. And so fermentation has existed for thousands of years. People have learned the art of fermenting uh, wine, fermenting rice wines, uh, uh, going back for millennia. According to Alexandru McHugh in an article for ZME Science titled Sugarcane Slaves Empire Toppling the Story of Rum, the earliest alcohols made from sugar would have been similar to brum, which is a traditional alcoholic beverage from Malaysia. McHugh notes that Italian explorer Marco Polo claimed he was offered a, quote, wine of sugar while in the area of modern-day Iran and reported that it was very good. These fermented beverages, brum, wine of sugar, these weren't quite rum. Mikyu calls them rum-like drinks, and that distinction comes down to the way they're made. If you leave a bunch of grapes sitting out, they'll eventually ferment naturally into something kind of like wine. To make liquor, rum is more complicated. So I asked my experts. Here's Scott. So we have we have the addition to make the rum or to make a spirit is you have the addition of the distillation process. So with molasses or anything you're making a beer or a wine out of, whether it be grapes or, or malt or corn, whatever you're going to do. Um, so that only takes it so far. You know, that only gets it like with with us. We can take it uh, for our fermentation time. We take uh, we take it up to 10 percent alcohol. So that's like a non-carbonated 10 percent alcohol molasses beer. So at that point, it's not rum. But once we take it through the distillation process, we extract that alcohol out of the uh, out of the beer, so to speak. Then that's when you end up having the spirit of rum. So like if you take grapes and you make wine and you distill that, then you have brandy. So it's it just really your spirit is dependent on what the uh, what the the root sugar source is of the fermentation process. Then Matt chimes in. Really, what you're doing with the with the spirit is you are you are starting with the flavor of the raw material that you're making that spirit out of that that raw material has already got flavor then through fermentation you are adding flavor to it and creating alcohol then with distillation you are concentrating that flavor and alcohol 
So rum-like drinks, wines and beers made of sugar, are basically a precursor to rum. They're the first step in the process of making rum, but they aren't rum because they aren't distilled. According to Dr. Smith, though, distillation was a thing. It was an emerging technology, just not with sugarcane yet. So fermentation, distilling itself, is something that goes back to the Middle East. The ancient、uh, Egyptians knew about distilling, but especially the Arab world. So one of the things they did was they distilled. They made medicinal things. They distilled various tinctures to to create medicines. Well. It wasn't really until distillation and the knowledge of distillation, the skills of distilling, technology makes its way to Europe, that physicians began their own process of making medicines, of distilling、uh, perfumes and rose water and things like that. And so, but around the 16th century and the 1500s,、uh, the French learned that they could concentrate their wine by distilling it. Turning it into brandy, and so these are sort of first experiments with distilling alcohol for、uh, for concentrated purposes,、um, but it was still very much based in that sort of mentality of of medicine. But let's go back to sugar because that's where the story of rum begins. After enough centuries of knowing about the existence of sugar, but not really being able to access it or afford it, Europe had had enough. They wanted sugar. Sugars like that, right? Dangerous stuff. So they decided to start growing it themselves. This started with Portugal, which had colonized the Madeira Islands off the west coast of Africa in the early 1400s. Here, they established 200 sugar plantations and built 80 sugar mills. But as I said before, sugar is a hard business. It's extremely time-consuming, extremely hard work, and it's very time-sensitive. If the sugarcane isn't processed into sugar in a timely fashion, the whole harvest could rot. There's a lot of pressure, so they have all this difficult, dangerous work that needs to be accomplished quickly in order to profit from it. They needed a lot of manpower, and they needed to cut their costs. Slavery was the natural solution. Portugal began importing enslaved people from nearby Africa to work on these sugar plantations, and with free labor from these enslaved Africans, Portuguese sugar began to outcompete sugar from the Middle East, making Madeira the world's biggest sugar exporter by 1500. And then there's Christopher Columbus. This guy just. The shockwaves he sent through history. I wonder if he had any idea how impactful his actions would become. This is the same time, 1492. Columbus goes to the Americas. He brings sugarcane with him、uh, on his second or third voyage. But it's not until 1620s when the British begin carving out their own sort of territories, taking islands like Barbados and Saint Kitts, that、um, sugarcane. Really begins to take off in the Caribbean region. That's Dr. Smith informing me that we have good old Chris to thank for the madness that's about to ensue in the Caribbean. So as Europeans continued to expand their empires and explore and settle in the Americas, they began to replicate Portugal's sugar business model. It was working. Let's repeat it elsewhere. Plus, the Caribbean had the perfect climate for sugar plantations. So what's happening in the 1620s is all of a sudden this. This knowledge of alcohol distillation is becoming more and more widespread in Europe, and here are all these、um, 
sugar planters or planters going to the Caribbean, they're recognizing the value of sugar. All of a sudden, almost overnight, the 1640s, Barbados has turned from sort of a small uh, little settlement of an island with tobacco farmers into this, you know, what would become the most valuable colony in the British Empire in the 17th century. And that's all based on sugarcane. Sugar was worth its weight in gold. It was the goods of kings and queens and lords and ladies, uh, and only the really wealthy could afford sugar. Barbados and Jamaica especially became huge centers of sugar production, and plantation owners were becoming very, very rich peddling this white gold they had produced with free slave labor. As the industry grew, it created a need for more and more enslaved Africans to work the fields and the sugar mills, fueling the triangle trade between Africa, America, and Europe. They had created a monster of a system whereby Europeans benefited immensely from the oppression of enslaved Africans and the conquest of land taken from indigenous Americans. All for sugar, which at this point Europe was completely addicted to and couldn't get enough of. So this sweet, seemingly innocent substance, the stuff of lollipops and birthday cakes, was fueling abusive colonial era slavery in the Americas. So let's talk about the lives of the enslaved people working on Caribbean sugar plantations. Not good. I touched on this already in episode 12 about abolition. Conditions for these people were absolutely abhorrent. They worked extremely long hours, sometimes on little sleep. They were often physically and sexually abused, easily and often separated from their family, sold with little warning to another plantation. The whole point of slave labor was that, number one, enslavers didn't have to pay them, but also, number two, they didn't have to ensure safe or fair working conditions. It was whatever, really. They could do whatever to these people, make them do whatever, and there was really no recourse. Enslaved people had no rights. So that's a hard life, an insufferable life. It's only natural that enslaved people would seek out some kind of escape from that kind of reality. And that escape, throughout time, is quite often alcohol. When sugarcane is processed into sugar, it leaves a byproduct, molasses. At the time, molasses was mostly considered a waste product by sugar producers, so they weren't concerned about what happened to it, really. It was of little value to them. So enslaved people began taking the molasses left over after the sugar was produced and turning it into alcoholic beverages, rum-like drinks like beers and wines made from fermented molasses. Dr. Smith shared a wealth of knowledge on this. Some of the first experiments, the first references to making an alcoholic beverage from sugarcane juice and molasses and uh, scum is actually the use of it by enslaved peoples in Puerto Rico. There's a reference in the early 16th century in Martinique. There are references to it in the early days of sugar making there. In Barbados, you have the same thing in the 1640s, just as the sugar industry is taking off, you've got Uh, references to enslaved peoples um, using sugarcane juice, molasses to make fermented alcoholic drinks, Uh, seven, eight, nine, ten percent alcohol content. And this is mirroring the traditions that West Africans brought with them across the Atlantic. So enslaved peoples in Barbados and Martinique came from 
societies, ethnic groups in what is today Ghana, what is today Nigeria, what is today the Congo, they brought with them their knowledge of alcohol production and alcohol fermentation. And in West Africa, uh, one of the most popular alcoholic beverages is something known as palm wine. And palm wine is made from the sap of uh, palm trees. And it has a long history going back um, probably thousands of years where people in the regions of these regions of West Africa would tap the palm tree, uh, the sap, which has sugar content, uh, would drain into a bowl. You would add water, you would cover it up, you would let it sit for a couple of weeks, um, and it would turn into a fermented, what they call palm wine. And reaching you know 10% alcohol, I think, before yeast tend to die. And so they carried this knowledge, this, this skill uh, with them overseas. But when they got to the Caribbean, they didn't have the right kind of palm trees uh, to make palm wine, but they did have a lot of sugarcane and a lot of sugarcane juice. So um, you see references as early as the, as I said, the early 16th century, uh, referencing the production of fermented alcoholic drinks made from sugarcane juice. And these are in many ways were sort of prototypes to rum. So Dr. Smith talked about enslaved Africans bringing knowledge of fermentation to the Caribbean from West Africa, carrying this little bit of their culture with them, but adapting it from palm wine into sugar wine, using what they had available. Scott mentioned something else I found interesting. And well, a lot of that too came from natives as well, because you have the natives who were coming from uh, the Caribbeans, uh, Arab and the uh, Arawaks coming from um, South America. When they came up and they were actually doing their own colonization of the Caribbean coming from um, South America, they brought techniques with them as well. And a lot of those stem from potatoes coming from Brazil and the, the Orinoco region. But they came in tribes and they would actually come up the islands and they came all the way as far up as uh, as the Virgin Islands into Jamaica and places like that. And there's origins of that coming there, which predates any pre-Columbian contact. So West African fermentation techniques meet South American fermentation techniques. But some question remains as to how and when people in the Caribbean took it to the next level and actually started distilling the fermented molasses into legit rum. Enslaved peoples came with nothing. So they didn't have the materials that they would be able to make their own stills. Um, although there are some references to, like in the ancient world, of using ceramic pots. However, by 1650, there is written evidence of a drink called rum bullion, or sometimes kill devil, being produced on the island of Nevis, which is like east of Puerto Rico. So pause for a minute. I live in a town called Kill Devil Hills, and although I've dug and dug and dug into the history of this town name, it's all very urban legendy, which is weird because the town was only incorporated and I'm assuming named officially in 1953. So I've always thought it weird that no one definitively knows the origin of the name. I'm assuming the area was called Kill Devil Hills long before the actual town was formed and that that information was just sort of lost to time officially. But I'm pretty sure there's a link to rum, which was often called Kill Devil in its infancy. Also not a coincidence that Scott and Matt's very own Outer Banks Distilling names its rum Kill Devil Rum. So I wanted to find out more about the name. Here's Scott. 
So that came as, as the first term for rum before they ever actually referred to it as rum. When they first started distilling uh, this spirit, you know, there's the old saying that it was so strong it would kill the devil inside you. But what that really came from was if somebody was getting sick with water being tainted with bacteria, if you were sick, they thought, oh, you must, this person must have the devil inside them. They were pretty spiritual people back then. So by taking this and drinking it, it being safer to drink than a shallow well water in the Caribbean, then it's going to be, it, it, was, it was safer. So they thought it would actually kill that devil inside you. And that term originated late 1500s, early 1600s, and you see it in use until the mid 1600s. According to Matt, rum took off in the Caribbean for a pretty specific reason. During those long trade routes that those early explorers were taking, that beer and wine was not lasting that long on the ship. They needed something that a commodity that was that was more um, that would last them longer through these through these long um, voyages at sea. That's kind of where spirits and specifically rum started to take hold and, and become the preferred sailing drink. <laughs> Here's Scott. Right. If you if you're in if you're in the Caribbean and you have to head from the Caribbean, you're heading up to the like to North America or to let's say New England or here. It's a long time on a, on a ship. And if you put water in a barrel, that water is going to spoil over time. If you put beer in a barrel, it's going to spoil after, you know, a, it'll last a little bit longer than water. But if you put rum in there, once it's in there, it's not going to be tainted. It's, it's got enough alcohol content at that point that it's going to be able to fight off any bacteria. Nothing can really live inside of it because it is liquor. So once it's in there, that's what it is. So it's just a lasting commodity on this on those ships i mean they would drink it for morale they would drink it with brackish water to help to um sanitize the water just you know just for consumption so mix it with citrus and you know that would actually get you some nutrients as well as the popularity of rum grew it soon reached the american colonies what is now the united states And they were fans. Colonists began distilling their own rum, importing molasses from Caribbean plantations. But rum became so much more than a beverage enjoyed by colonists, an escape for overworked, enslaved people. Its value grew to the extent that it actually transformed into a currency with purchasing power. After its prototype, at least, was likely invented by enslaved people, rum was then used to purchase more enslaved people from Africa. Let the horrible irony of that sink in for a moment. With rum as currency, a secondary triangle trade emerged. American colonists traded rum for enslaved Africans. They then traded those enslaved Africans to plantation owners in the Caribbean in exchange for sugar and molasses that they used to create more rum, and the cycle continued. According to Marco Perini in an article for Got Rum magazine called The Dark Side of Rum, quote, Americans also entered the lucrative trade by using their locally produced cheap, strong rum, without any moral qualms, but with a hint of embarrassment. For example, Captain David Lindsay of Newport called the vessels engaged in the trade rum ships rather than slave ships, and another slaver captain referred to us rum men. Even the rum for the slave trade was euphemized into guinea rum, end quote. We know that rum was used as currency to purchase enslaved people because we have detailed logs recording exactly how much rum was traded for what. 
English historian and writer Hugh Thomas recorded in his book *The Slave Trade*: "Quote." In 1755, Caleb Godfrey, a slave captain from Newport, Rhode Island, bought four men, three women, three girls, and one boy for 799 gallons of rum, two barrels of beef, and one barrel of pork, together with some smaller items. And in 1767, Captain William Taylor, acting for Richard Brew of Cape Coast, bought male slaves at 130 gallons each, women at 110, and young girls at 80. By 1773, the price was higher. 210 to 220 gallons per slave was paid by the captain of Aaron Lopez, Cleopatra. End quote. Can you imagine? Measuring the value of a human life in barrels of rum, how many barrels of rum do you think you're worth? In his article, "The Dark Side of Rum," Marco Perini brings up an interesting point: that rum, while initially used by enslaved people as a sort of escape relief, was also strategically used by enslavers to further oppress enslaved people. According to Perini, it was not uncommon for enslavers to intentionally distribute rum to enslaved people, sometimes on a holiday, sometimes after completing particularly hard or difficult work. He says, quote, "And yet the drunkenness of the slaves, whichever way it may appear, was never a real moment of liberation. On the contrary, it reasserted their condition of inferiority." End quote. And then he cites the writing of Frederick Douglass, who escaped from slavery in 1838 and became an incredibly influential American abolitionist and author. Douglass wrote, quote, The holidays are part and parcel of the gross fraud, wrong, and inhumanity of slavery. They are professedly a custom established by the benevolence of the slaveholders, but I undertake to say it is the result of selfishness and one of the grossest frauds committed upon the downtrodden slave. They do not give the slaves this time because they would not like to have their work during its continuance, but because they know it would be unsafe to deprive them of it. This will be seen by the fact that the slaveholders like to have their slaves spend those days just in such a manner as to make them as glad of their ending as of their beginning. Their object seems to be to disgust their slaves with freedom by plunging them into the lowest depths of dissipation. For instance, the slaveholders not only like to see the slave drink of his own accord, but will adopt various plans to make him drunk. One plan is to make bets on their slaves as to who can drink the most whiskey without getting drunk, and in this way they succeed in getting whole multitudes to drink to excess. Thus, when the slave asks for virtuous freedom, the cunning slaveholder, knowing his ignorance, cheats him with a dose of vicious dissipation, artfully labeled with the name of liberty. The most of us used to drink it down, and the result was just what might be supposed. Many of us were led to think that there was little to choose between liberty and slavery. We felt, and very properly too, that we had almost as well be slaves to man as to rum. So when the holidays ended, we staggered up from the filth of our wallowing, took a long breath, and marched to the field, feeling, upon the whole, rather glad to go. From what our master had deceived us into a belief was freedom, back to the arms of slavery. End quote. 
Dr. Smith also brought up Frederick Douglass organically in our conversation, but he had a slightly different take on it. Rum has its origins in the exploitation of labor and the exploitation of peoples of African descent. It was used as a form of labor control. It was used as a tool of domination. Uh, it was given out as part of a reward system. It was given out uh, to make workers work harder during bad weather. It was given out medicinally to uh, help ensure the health of enslaved peoples. It was used, as I say, as a tool of domination. However, enslaved peoples also used it as a tool of resistance. You see rum being used in birth ceremonies, in marriages, and in funeral ceremonies in the Caribbean, much the same way that palm wine was used in birth, marriage, and funeral ceremonies in various parts of West Africa. So on the one hand, it's a tool of domination, but on the other hand, it's a tool of resistance. Now, Frederick Douglass, the, the uh, famous abolitionist, freed slave uh, from North America, was also a temperance advocate. Many people don't know this. They know about his abolition work in the abolitionist movement, but he was also a temperance advocate. And one of the things he argued was that um, if enslaved peoples didn't have their weekend parties and fests, their one day off a week to sort of blow off steam, then there would have been uh, more likelihood of rebellion. So rum in many ways acted as a safety, as a pressure valve, right? Tension built up in society. We have regular intervals. Every week we have weekends, right? Every year we have Mardi Gras or Carnival or some way to sort of blow off steam, homecoming, right? Um, where people go out and they drink heavily and all the problems of the world that sort of build up over time, you sort of let that steam off and then um, it sort of reverts back. It sort of resets the clock, right? But if you look at the history of slave rebellions, slave uprisings in the Caribbean, they often occur during these times, during Christmas celebrations, the Jamaica Christmas Rebellion, I think 1831, the um, 1816 slave revolt in Barbados occurred at Easter. On the one hand, you've got this tool of domination, the use of alcohol to coerce labor, to facilitate labor, to exploit enslaved labor. But enslaved peoples also used rum and turn the tables on that process by maintaining West African traditions revolving around alcohol use, maintaining their West African spiritual practices, and also using it to, to challenge the inequities of the uh, status quo by not adopting European traditions and by using these temporary timeouts, um, alcohol fueled events and occasions where actually the planters themselves doled out huge amounts of, of rum during these times to actually overturn the system of slavery. 
It makes sense to me that alcohol was involved in uprisings and revolts on plantations. It has a way of bringing people together, uniting us. It's why we like to drink with someone. Drinking is a very social thing. We bond while we're drinking. Dr. Smith mentioned the West African custom of the oath drink that enslaved Africans brought with them to the Caribbean. But also another aspect of this resistance that I discovered in my book is the oath drink, right? So in West Africa, oath drinks were very important in sort of solidifying connections between individuals to keep a, uh, to show your commitment to a particular person, to a particular cause, to a particular group, you would consume an oath drink. And these oath drinks in West Africa consisted of palm wine. In the Caribbean, oath drinks become modified and they become associated with slave uprisings. So before the Haitian Revolution, before the 1816 uprising in Barbados, before the Christmas Rebellion in Jamaica, participants made oath drinks that consisted of rum, gunpowder, blood from a chicken uh, or a goat or a pig, the ground Uh, horns of oxen, and they were combining all these sort of symbolically important materials. So uh, grave dirt, also an important part of oath drinks. So you would mix, you would sprinkle grave dirt into the rum, you would sprinkle uh, gunpowder, which is the source of the planter's power, uh, into these oath drinks. And everybody around the, who were committed to this, to these uprisings, would consume these oath drinks as a way to show commitment to the cause. Freedom, slavery, relief, oppression. Rum is complicated, and that's not even the end of the story. Sometime in the 1700s, France banned the production of rum in their colonies. France already had a liquor, brandy. They didn't need rum competing with brandy, so they banned it. This had unintended consequences for British sugar producers. Sugar plantations in these French colonies had no need for molasses anymore. They couldn't make rum with it. So there was a major drop in the price of molasses coming from French colonies, which means rum makers in colonial America started buying molasses from the French instead of the British. It was cheaper. Why not? This meant they could also sell their rum for less and still make a profit. So the rum coming from the American colonies was suddenly cheaper than British rum, but just as good. So everyone started buying American rum, and this caused outrage in Great Britain. The rich people were not happy, because if you're in the rum business, if you have a plantation, sugar mills, rum stills, you're very rich. And rich people are very squeaky wheels, which made this an issue of great importance. In 1733, Great Britain passed the Molasses Act, which placed an exorbitant tax on molasses imported into the American colonies from non-British plantations. So basically, they're like, okay, the Americans are buying up all that cheap French molasses and turning it into cheap rum, which is hurting the sales of our more expensive rum. Everyone is buying cheap American rum now, so the problem is the cheap French molasses. Let's make French molasses more expensive by putting this crazy tax on it. That should even things back out. 
Because this is 1733, pre-Revolutionary War. The American colonies are still very much under the control of the British crown and forced to pay whatever taxes the crown feels like doling out. But honestly, the Americans didn't really take the Molasses Act seriously. They just started smuggling in foreign molasses so they didn't have to pay the crazy high taxes. And it wasn't very strongly enforced by the British either. They just kind of turned a blind eye. After the failure of the Molasses Act, many more taxes were imposed and actually enforced. The Sugar Act, the Currency Act, the Quartering Act, the Stamp Act, just so many taxes. They were over it. They were tired of paying all this money to Great Britain when they had no say in the way the money would be spent, no voice in the government. This is where the whole idea of no taxation without representation came from. But that Molasses Act, that early tax that no one paid or enforced, that did some damage. According to Alexandru Mikyu in that article for ZME, quote, The damage had already been done since the Molasses Act. Political authority is a fickle thing. A large part of being in power is people believing that you are in power. The rampant evasion of the molasses tax, one that everyone could see and was part of, together with the resentment of the colonies towards a measure they perceived punished them unjustly, shattered the illusion of British supremacy over the Americas. This crack would eventually grow and help shape the events and sentiments that made the American colonies seek out their independence, end quote. Dr. Smith mentioned this as well. British Parliament prevents uh, or puts heavy restrictions on the importation of molasses. And this makes the colonists very unhappy. It's sort of the spark in many ways for the American Revolution, before the Stamp Act, before the Sugar Act of 1764. So it, it helps to create these tensions. So while rum began with enslaved people, it's then turned against them and used to fuel the slave trade and perpetuate slavery. It's part of what helped build up this powerful, oppressive British empire in the Americas. And then with the passing of the Molasses Act, that crack opens up in the illusion of British supremacy, which acts as a catalyst to bring the whole empire crashing down during the American Revolution. Rum is complicated. It's a giant contradiction. Matt and Scott see rum through two different lenses. Rum has a a tremendously uh, complex and terrible history when it comes to the backs of the people that it was built on. You look at, you know, New England in that time and the success of New England was was completely came down to the sugar cane and rum industry. Um, and the fact that our country was built on on that. Our politicians in the beginning, George Washington, how much rum that he was buying, uh, you know, for political power. You know, I mean, it was, it, it, they measured a political uh, politician's um, merit on the generosity of of the po- politician and how much rum that they would have at the you know their speeches and you know inauguration or inauguration. Right. Um, but you have to understand that rum did have come from a pretty dark place of trading for human beings and slavery being what produced that, that spirit. But like I think all things that are that are grown, especially in this country or in our region of the world, you have to understand that a lot of it did have a dark past. But it that doesn't have to affect the future of the product, just like cotton having the dark past that it, it does. 
you know, you still want to make sure now that it's grown sustainable, the people who are working those fields, whether it's sugarcane, whether it's cotton, uh, whether it's corn, are, you know, have a, a livable wage and, and a lifestyle for our time period. And the biggest yeah. thing I think is, is to respect the history, to not change the narrative of the history, to tell the stories like you're doing through this podcast, and then to work really hard to make sure that where we're sourcing sugar from nowadays is, you know, a certified producer that takes care of their workforce and cares about sustainability and um, the, you know, effects that it has on, on our planet. It's, it's, it's one of those questions, that, you know, that we all encounter in life. It's like, is the history worth the means that we're at now? And I think it's just, it's, it's part of life where you just, you have to, you have to remember it, respect it, and then move forward in the best way we can. And rum can come a long way now with that thought. It's, we spent a, a, enough time in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, when you think of rum, you think of cartoon pirates and people dancing around and like and drinking fruity coconut rum. And, and, it's, and it's fine. If that's what, what you, I'm not saying not, not to, to do that by any means. I'm just saying now it's different. Like your, the thoughts on like your podcast being called History Fix you're fixing the narrative of, of what it is so people can really know what they're drinking and why and where it comes from. The, the amount of pride that the, that the people in the Caribbean take in the products that they're making nowadays. And it, it, it seemingly is the lifeblood of some of these countries and the fact that they are able to, own their own sugar production in that country and produce a, a, a product that is, you know, they're one of their main exports and they can put food on their family's tables through the means of rum. I mean, there's an incredible amount of pride that, that, uh, that those people take in, in that. Um, and that, that is not lost, you know, and that is, uh, something that should be thought about and, and something that, you know, should be remembered and, and known that, you know, that's, that's a big part of, of, uh, of those of those countries culture right you can no one could ever say that barbados is not proud of mount gay rum you know that's it's a big thing like that's like that's the island's postcards when they go out and um on our respect for what we do that's something that we've been trying to create on our end as a rum producer here on the outer banks to create a product that your whole community can be proud of and get behind dr smith sees rum two ways as well for me, it's just how you look at it. You could look at it through both lenses, but I see it more as a, a, a way to challenge the system because of its origins and because of the, the way that rum is used to sort of maintain these links across the Atlantic. Even today, you go to a rum shop in Barbados, the bartender will bring over a tray of ice cubes and a a uh, couple of glasses and a bottle of rum. And when you crack open that bottle of rum, you have to drop the first few drops on the ground uh, in reverence to the ancestors and reverence to those who came before. And these traditions have their origins in West Africa. So what are the traditions that have survived for hundreds of years? Uh, a lot of those traditions uh, from West Africa uh, revolve around the consumption and activities that revolve around drinking. 
Yeah. I like, I like thinking about it like, um, like a little piece of African culture that survived through slavery because so much was lost. Um, you know, when you oppress a group to that level, they're going to lose a lot of who they were, but I like, it's almost like rum is a way that their culture kind of managed to shine through. And that's really cool. Right. Right. Exactly. Because I've actually have had debates, um, or I've heard recently someone, uh, a scholar sort of demonizing, potentially demonizing rum by saying, by highlighting the fact that its origins are based in sort of exploitation. But I think that if you, if you look at it through the lens of enslaved peoples themselves and how they used rum and used it to challenge the system, I think it's, that's what's unique about rum. And my head is still spinning a bit after taking this all in, like I've had one too many sips of rum myself. Its convoluted past is intoxicating, drop by drop. But whether you're tasting the drop of oppression and domination, or the drop of culture, tradition, pride, and resistance that made its way through all of that, I hope I leave you today with an appreciation of rum. Respect for its dark and stormy past and admiration for a people who clung to their roots when everything else was stripped away from them. Roots that remain strong in the Caribbean today. So the next time you have a drink of rum, be sure to pour a little out for them. Thank you all so very much for listening to History Fix, and a huge thank you to Matt and Scott over at Outer Banks Distilling. If you ever find yourself in historic downtown Manio, North Carolina, be sure to pop into their wheelhouse lounge to try Kill Devil Rum for yourself. You're likely to find Matt behind the bar, and he'll certainly make it worth your time. You can also head over to OuterBanksDistilling.com to learn more about what Matt and Scott do and to find out where else you can buy Kill Devil Rum. I'll link that in the description. And of course, thank you to Dr. Frederick Smith. His passion for this topic was truly palpable, and you can learn so much more from his book, Caribbean Rum, A Social and Economic History. I have a link for that in the description as well. As always, I hope you found this story interesting and maybe you even learned something new. Be sure to follow my Instagram at History Fix Podcast to see some images that go along with this episode and to stay on top of new episodes as they drop. I'd also really appreciate it if you'd rate and follow this podcast on whatever app you're using to listen. That'll make it much easier to get your next fix. Information used in this episode was sourced from Food and Wine Magazine, Encyclopedia Britannica, GotRum.com, Smithsonian National Museum of American History, ZME Science, University of Oxford, and of course, Caribbean Rum, A Social and Economic History by Dr. Frederick H. Smith. Links to all of these sources can be found in the show notes.